Uh, all right. So welcome to this year's Shabbos Hagadol Drasha. So Shabbos Hagadol is usually an excursion into Hilchos Shabbos, or sometimes, I'm sorry, Hilchos Shabbos, Hilchos Pesach. I should stop the recording and start again. Hilchos Pesach, or, you know, we get into the Haggadah. Tonight, we're really going to be taking a look at only three words of the Haggadah, and mostly our focus is going to be on Chumash. That's going to be mostly a Chumash share, and you're going to see what I mean by that. And we're going to retell a story that I think you all know, but we're just going to tell it a little bit differently. Okay, so here we go. Uh, so to begin, I'm going to share my screen. So if you did not print out the multitudinal page source sheet, uh, you have this. We can all look at it together, and um, hopefully that'll be easier. Uh, it's one of the wonderful things about Zoom is that I could show you where I'm reading. I could show you the place, and uh, that makes that a lot easier. Okay, so here we are. Uh, our source sheet, Arami Dovidavi, looking back at our personal past to guide our national and congregational, congregational, that's us, congregational future. Okay, so here we are. And this, I guess we can say, uh, take two, take two, because uh, we, we've done this already. Ho hopefully the reviews were good, uh, or maybe you didn't have anybody who was there, so you don't know to, to avoid this, but here we go. So we have a very famous Mishnah to begin. The Mishnah that describes what exactly is the goal of the night. And so the Mishnah tells us that the goal of the night is to engage our children and to have them be curious so that they ask the question. Not the four questions, but the one question. And the one question is, why is this night different from all other nights? Why? Why in the world is it different? So we give them a bunch of examples of the kid figures out their own questions. Great. And if they don't, we feed them the Manashtana because that gives four examples of how this night is different from all other nights. All right, good. We got questions. We got curious kids. We have succeeded, that's all we need. But I would just ask you this, what is the answer? What is the answer that we give the child after the Manashtana, what's the answer? So the Mishnah tells us, it's a little bit vague, honestly. The Mishnah says, make it a little bit bigger than this. And based on the intelligence of the child, the father, the parent will teach. Which means we're going to start with the bad and we're going to end with the good. So we're going to tell a story. The story is going to be a good story. Not only that, but it'll be dramatically told. It'll be told as if there's tension, as if there's some sort of crisis, the bad, and then we're going to transition to the good. That's the resolution. That's the, you know, uh, that's the end of the story. And that's, you know, you have crisis and then resolution. That's the way a good story should be told. Now, it doesn't say anything about what story we're telling. And that's why there's a, this is the subject of a later debate in the Gemara. What do we talk about? or something else. Okay, but that's not what I want to focus on tonight. What we're going to focus on is this next line, because this next line is something that is difficult to understand and honestly difficult to do, as we'll describe. Vidoresh, the Mishnah then says, me arami obeyed ovi. We should be doresh from arami obeyed avi. We'll see what that means in a second. Ad sheyigmar kol ha kula. Until we finish and complete the entire parsha. Okay, so until we finish and complete the whole story, the whole parsha. We are um, supposed to be involved in Arami Rovidavi. What is Arami Rovidavi? What does this mean? What is this talking about? So let's take a step back to understand what's so important about reading this story on this night. The story comes from a sequence of Sukkim in the beginning of Parshas Kisavo. In the beginning of Parshas Kisavo, it speaks of an interesting mitzvah. That mitzvah is the mitzvah of Bikurim, first fruits. You were supposed to figure out which one of your fruits was going to be the first to ripen. Once it was ripe, you would tie a little string. And then after you had get, gotten a certain amount, you would go and bring all of those fruits when they were ready to be picked. You would bring them up to the Beis HaMikdash, and that would be the mitzvah of Bikurim. Okay? Now, the Pasuk describes this mitzvah in depth. It says you're going to go, and when you get to the land, you're going to enjoy doing this mitzvah, and you're going to take me racious called Priyo Adam, you're going to take from all of these fruits, Asher Tavimi Artzacha, that you bring from your land, Asher Hashem Elokechan Rosemach, so this great land that God gave you, gave to you, you're going to bring the fruits, and then you're going to put them in a basket, so then you're going to bring them to the Beis Hamidash in this basket, and then you're going to go get them, and finally you're going to get there, you're going to talk to the coin, and you're going to say, hey coin, I brought all of the fruits that I was supposed to bring, and here we are, this is fantastic news, and the coin is going to take your basket, and then he's going to put it down right in front of this Beach, fantastic, good, the, bag, the, bag, the basket of fruits is down in front of this bag. And now you have a speaking role. Each and every one of you, whoever does this mitzvah, you're going to speak. And you shall answer, you shall say before God, Arami Oved Avi, Vayered Mitzrayma. Arami Oved Avi. I don't know what those words mean yet. I see what the translation 
is over here, but that translation is actually, as we'll see, very controversial. So let's hold on off the translation. Let's ignore those three words. So it says, we went down to Egypt. Once upon a time, you're going to tell the story after you put your basket down. And we were there with very few people. And then we became huge, we became tremendous. Atsum, strong, verav, and populous. It got bad. The Egyptians did bad to us. And they afflicted us. And they did a terrible thing to us. They gave us hard work. And we cried out. And God heard. He heard our oppression. This is such good news. We're going to get out of here. This is fantastic. And indeed, God took us out with an outstretched hand and clenched fists with amazing things, signs, and portents, whatever those are. He brought us to this place, this place, this incredibly important place of Eretz Yisrael. And he gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Beautiful. And now I am bringing, now that I'm in this land, after this entire story occurs, I am bringing the first fruits from my orchard. What a beautiful, what a beautiful little story he tells. And what's remarkable about this story, of course, is that in five verses, what did he do? What did, what did this person accomplish? The person accomplished the retelling of the entire 15 chapters of the Exodus that is found in the first 15 chapters of Exodus in just five verses. You didn't have to go through the whole story of Shemoz, Ba'ira, Bo, Bishalach to get the whole thing fleshed out. He told the whole story right here. This is fantastic. It's a script literally written in the Torah for the person who brings Bikurim to recite. So now back to our Mishnah. Why does the Mishnah say we should expound this, these five psukim? I'll tell you why. Because honestly, if we would have to expand 15 chapters, we would be there all night. So that's not okay. That's not acceptable. So we have five psukim to drill into, five psukim summary, which really restates the entire story of the Exodus. Beautiful. Now I want to return to those first three words, Arami Oved Avi, because I'll tell you, from the words Vayered Mitzrayim, he went down to Egypt, and who's the he? That's Yaakov, right? Yaakov went down to Egypt, and Yaakov went with his family, he went to see his son Yosef, and we know what happens next. But from that part of the story, I completely get it. There's like a beginning and a middle and an end. We got tension, we got the whole story right here. But what is Arami Oved Avi? So You'll probably tell me, Arami Rovidavi, that's Lavan. But I want you to just strip that idea away before we get to that idea. And just look at the translation here. Because the translation that I got from Sepharia actually does not read that it's Lavan. Look at what it says. Arami Oved Avi. My father was Avi, was an Arami Oved. He was an Arami, an Aramean, a fugitive Aramean. Okay, that's weird because Yaakov was an Aramean. He was lived in Aram for a, for a little bit, I guess. But it, it's, a, it's a weird way to explain this process. It's something which we're not used to, but it kind of makes sense in the Pshat. My father was a fugitive, and that's why, I mean, he, he wasn't settled anywhere. He ended up going to Egypt. But that's how much of a fugitive that he was. He ended up in Egypt, and then the story plays. So it's a good translation for these words because it, it, it works. It works with the body of the text. But you might be aware, and I'm not going to go through it right now, but you might be aware that this question of who Arami Oved Avi is referring to is by no means simple. Is the word Oved a verb, Arami Oved Avi, as we'll see in a moment, or an adjective? My father was a wandering, uh, wandering uh, Aramean, or is it that he was Arami, an Aramite, a person, an Aramean, Oved, destroyed or attempted to destroy my father. Two very different interpretations of this, which is, you look in Rashi versus the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra says, no, 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 my father was the wandering fugitive. But that's not how this is understood by Rashi, by Unculus, by the Safri, or most importantly for us tonight, by the Haggadah. Skipping some sources, let's take a look at what the Haggadah understands this paragraph as, because it's honestly bonkers. Literally bonkers. We have a paragraph that we all know. We pick up a cup and sing this paragraph. And we've talked about in the Haggadah Shir in the past how awkward and weird it is that we sing a paragraph that relates to the every generation there be, be, being people who rise up against the Jewish people. But okay, let's move on from that. It's not just one generation that they try to destroy us, but every generation. Woohoo! 
Uh, but God saves us from them. Okay, nice. And that relates to the paragraph before it, as I've often discussed. But then we have another, another phrase. Look at what Lavan wanted to do to Yaakov. Now, if I'm editing the Haggadah, if I'm the guy who writes Magad, I would probably wonder, uh, I don't know, you're mixing people in. Lavan, uh, Lavan is earlier in Jewish history. Could we just focus focus on the Exodus, please? I mean, could we just focus on Paro? And not only do we focus on Lavan and seem to ignore, like, who cares about Lavan as a villain? You know, there are a lot of villains throughout Jewish history that we're not talking about on the night of the Seder. So why are we talking about Lavan? But then the paragraph doubles down on this and says, by the way, you know how bad Lavan was? Lavan was so bad. He was worse than Paro. So we're actually diminishing and minimizing what actually happened to the Jews in Egypt when describing Lavan. As it says, Go, consider, think about how bad it was that he wanted to, what he wanted to do to Yaakov. Paro only wanted to do infanticide for one gender for the boys. Lavan wanted to undermine and destroy everybody. Okay, interesting, interesting. So what do we do in this Haggadah, where we're busy trying to make the case that Paro in Egypt and Avadim Hayinu Lepar Mitzrayim, but you think Paro is bad, Lavan, oh, much worse. Totally irrelevant, and not only that, but it undermines the whole argument that Egypt was this terrible experience that we're so happy to have overcome. What is happening here in this paragraph? Why are we bringing up Lavan? Why are we comparing him to Paro? And why are we implying that Lavan may have been even worse? And I have another question. My question is, remember, Arami Ovedavi, Arami, the Aramean, that is Lavan, tried to destroy my father. What does that have to do with Vayered Mitzrayim? Vayered Mitzrayim, they went down to Egypt. If you look at the words in the Pasuk, the guy puts his basket down when he brings his Bikurim, and he tells the story of the Exodus. And he start, starts, instead of saying, Vayered Mitzrayim, he says, Arami Ovedavi. Why? What does that have to do with it? So yeah, so I mean, Yaakov dealt with Laban. Okay, that's that's difficult. A lot of things happened before Yaakov went down. He dealt with Dina and Shechem. I mean, he had quite the story. Yaakov's quite the storied life. And yet we're focusing on this as if it matters to the story. You abridge 15 chapters. You don't throw in an extra material. What does this material have to do with what comes next? So that's the question that I'd like to ask. Try to understand. If you understand, like Ibn Ezra that says, Aramido, my father was a wandering Aramean and he ended up in Egypt. Good, I get that story. Makes sense. But if you understand, like Rashi, the Safri, and the Haggadah itself, which teaches us that Arami Ovidavi means that there was Lavan who tried to kill Yaakov and then Yaakov ended up in Egypt, I ask you, who cares? Why is that important for the purpose of Vayered Mitzrayim describing the rest of these events? So there are, there are answers to this question. I learned one when I was a little kid. I learned an answer. Why did Yaakov being abused by Lavan end up that we get, went to Egypt? So listen to the calculation. The calculation goes, and this is, this is found in Mepharshim. The calculation goes as follows. Why did the Jews end up in Egypt? Because of the jealousy with the brothers and they sold Yosef and Yosef ends up down in Egypt. Why was there jealousy amongst the brothers? Because of the favoritism to Yosef. Why was the favoritism to Yosef seen as problematic because Yosef wasn't the oldest brother. I guess favoritism is okay if it's the oldest brother. So why wasn't he the oldest brother? He was the son of Rachel. Why wasn't Rachel's child the oldest child? Why wasn't Rachel married to or assuming that Rachel would have had children first, right? Rachel ended up having children way after Leah had six children. But had Lava not flipped the wives around, then Yosef would have been the son of the favored wife, and then maybe it would have been cool to favor him. I never loved that answer, but okay, yeah. So Rami Dovidavi, and he flipped everything around. He flipped the script, and that's why we ended up in Egypt because of the jealousy, yada, 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 yada. That's an answer. But I'd like to share with you an answer which fulfills the words, say ulamad, go and learn and study, and everything begins to make sense. And this is the answer of the Gra. The Vilna Gon explains in his Tikkun Zohar, a beautiful idea, which honestly, it we're almost tipped off Two, once you know it, with this word, Paro versus Lavan. Paro versus Lavan was not a small thing. Paro versus Lavan is actually the whole story. And let me explain what I mean. I'm not going to go through all of the examples. You have them in the sheets. You can print it out. You can take a look at it. It's going to take a lot of time and 
attention spans on Zoom are not what attention spans are in real life. But what the Gra argues, and not only that, but I was able to find even more support for this case, the Gra argues that what happened to Lavan, what happened to Yaakov under Lavan, was the same as what happened to the Jews under the Egyptians. Not only was it the same where he suffered and he struggled, etc., but it was the same in that the, the actual details of the story match up in an uncanny way. And so you have this n- nice chart here. Uh, enjoy the chart and the uh, in the source sheets. Yaakov under Lavan versus the Bnei Israel under the Egyptians. Okay, obviously they're both sides were treated badly. Okay, Paro, we know how badly the Jews were treated. He gave them taskmasters, and they had to work hard, and they weren't going to get paid, and they were enslaved. It was terrible, terrible, terrible. We know this story. That's the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. But what happened to Yaakov? Same thing. First of all, his one true love, his Rachel, that he loved so much, this, this, this woman, this, this woman that he pined for. For seven years he worked for this woman, taken out from under him. And now he has somebody else in the way. It's, it's, it's complicated. and never, never again will things be simple for him. But more similarly to what the Jews went through later, what happens? He works for Lovren for two decades, and he can't get paid. Lovren says, hey, you work for free. Let's make a deal. This is way into the story. What do you mean? They made a deal 20 times already. He just never paid it. So he is basically enslaved to Lovren. He doesn't get paid by Lavan. He doesn't get paid properly. And he changed the deal on him 20 times. And so just like his descendants, he works for free. Says the Gra, that's only number one. Number two, he eventually wants to leave. He wants to leave from Lavan. They have the last child, or they think, I want to go. Let me go. Let me and my family go. What does Lavan say? Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Maybe later, I'm, I'm achieving great success because you're here. And because you're here, things are great for me. And because they're so great, I'm sorry, I can't let you go. Same thing later. Not so easy for the Jewish people to leave. Moshe comes to Paro and says, Paro, let my people go. To which Paro says, sorry, not happening. I can't let you go. I can't let the people go. Again, Yaakov at the end of the story, they hear, what does he do? He figures out this whole scheme where he has the, 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 the spotted sheep that are born are going to retain, be retained by him. So he figures out a way to get the sheep to be born spotted, right? And in the end, he does so well that he actually takes most of Lavan's money. So much so that Lavan's children say, Yaakov emptied us out. Look at the word that they use. They say, God has taken away your father's livestock and given it to me. Yaakov says this to his wives. God was vayatzel. Sound familiar? Sure. The Jewish people get the money that they're owed at the end of the Mitzrayim story, right? They take the achrei chen yetsu berchush gadol. They took the great wealth by Hashem nasan es chen ha'am be'eni Mitzrayim by Yashilum. They ask for their things by yenatzlu es Mitzrayim, and they empty out the Egyptians. Vayatzel, vayenatzlu. Yaakov ends up with his just desserts, as do the Jewish people at the end of their story. But wait, there's more. What is the active object with which Yaakov uses to figure out how to get love on? He uses a staff, he uses a stick, shoots of poplar, almond and plain, almond and plain, and he uses them to, to, to have spots on them, and somehow he figures out a way to miraculously get the sheep to be born spotted. Amazing. Sticks. What does that sound like? Says the Gra, Hashem. What does he say to Moshe? What do you have in your hand? And Moshe answers, I got a staff. And so indeed, God tells him, you take the staff, and with that staff, you perform miracles. Yaakov's got a stick, and Moshe's got a stick. And that's with the tool with which we create their nisim. So not only are they they're enslaved, not only do they have a hard time leaving, not only do they end up getting their just desserts and end up getting paid at the end, but it's also a staff in both of the stories. But there's more. They're shocked at the escape. Yaakov says, uh, Lovan doesn't know that he escapes, and he escapes. But even though Yaakov is leave Lovan or Rami, he doesn't tell him, Ki and the same thing happens. You got Lamelech Mitzrayim, Ki Barachaam. Yaakov runs away, and the Bnei Israel walk away, run away. It's like, it's Mamish parallel. It's the same exact thing. And then it's just like the, the icing on the cake, says the Gra. Lovan realizes on the third day that they had left after three days, but you got the Lovan, but Yamashlishi, Ki Barach Yaakov. 
And then he chases him and he takes him how long to get him? Seven, until the seventh day. So he figures it out after three and he catches him at seven. What happens famously, as Rashi explains, with the Jewish people and the Egyptians, after three days, because they had asked for a holiday of three days, power's like, hey, they're not coming back. Let's go get him. And he catches them as well on the seventh day. All of these parallels, parallels say the, say the Gra, are not accidental. There's something about the repetition of Lavan and Yaakov, which repeats itself with Paro and the Bnei Yisrael. Let's talk about a couple others. I found in Rabbi Nabachi, Rabbi Nabachi points out how he fuses together a couple of Midrashim. He says, how many sheep did Lavan start out with before he was blessed by the presence of Yaakov? He began with 70. How much does the Midrash say he ended with? 600,000, right? We know those two numbers. 70 is the number with which we begin the Jews who get into Egypt and they leave ultimately with 600,000, another parallel. Finally, at the Haggadah, we talk about how Lavan was dealt with before he was about to uh, confront Yaakov the night before we say at the end of the Haggadah in Vayihi B'chatsi HaLayla, Hivchadeta Arami Ve'emesh Layla. It was that night of Pesach that Lavan was confronted by God and said, do not speak ill towards Yaakov, good or bad. Do not speak to him, good or bad. And so altogether, we have all these parallels between his story and the story of Yitzhak Mitzrayim. And so here are the words that the Gura concludes with, the entire story is parallel. You're going to find so many things that are similar one to the other. But what does it mean? What does it mean that these two stories are parallel? What are you supposed to do with this information? And the answer, I believe, is as follows. Yaakov lives Yitzhak Mitzrayim, lives Yitzhak Mitzrayim in a way which is, we'll call it Yitzhak Mitzrayim 1.0. And then the Jews are actually enslaved by the Egyptians, and that's 2.0. That's the second version of the same event, as the Grudge just pointed out. The same events happen twice, one in a microcosmic way, and one in a magnified way for all of his descendants, but it's the same thing. Same thing again and again. And let me show you how I know this. We have the beginning of Parshas Vayeshev. Parshas Vayeshev, Vayeshev Yaakov, Eretz Meguriyav, Eretz Canaan, he dwells, you see Bikesh Yaakov, Leishev, Bishal, he's chill, he's chill, he's chill, he finally gets a chance to relax in life. And why is he relaxed? Why is he so relaxed? Listen to this Medrash Yilam Deinu. The Medrash says, and I'll say it outside, Yaakov was convinced that after his love and experience, the prophecy that his grandfather Abraham had been given, Yodoa Teya, Kiger, that your grandchildren will be a refugee in another person's land and be subject to their persecution. You know what Yaakov thought? He knew that. He knew the legend of the family. He thought that those words were fulfilled in his own life. He thought that it was he who was the one who had just been through the gullus, the exile, that was prophesied to his grandfather. And so once he was done with Lavan, because he literally thought he went through everything. He went through slavery, he went through not getting paid, he went through, finally he got up, the whole story happened to him before, and, and so that, that's it, he was done. And so Yeshev Yaakov, Yaakov says, like, okay, finally I can chill. Finally I can relax. But that's not what happened. God says, that's not ultimately the calculation that Abraham has given. There's going to be another exile. And that other exile is going to be in Egypt. And so Yaakov ends up going to Egypt as the beginning of that exile. The exile which was the repeat of what he had dealt with, but was ultimately what, for whatever reason, the people, his descendants, would require. But going down was not so simple. The Torah describes what happened when Yaakov went down to Gullus. He was petrified. It says in the Pasuk, he was by Yered Mitzrayma. We, when we talk about this in the Haggadah, he goes down to Egypt, Anus al Pihadibor. He was forced to go. Yosef was there. I mean, how could he not go? Yosef, the son, he hasn't seen him in so long, is there. And he only went al Pihadibor because God had told him to. What, what do you mean? Why, why wouldn't he go to Yosef otherwise? So, I mean, it's clear. The Pasuk describes how he brings Zavachim to his father Yitzchak when he's on his way down. He stops in Beersheba, and God appears to him in a night vision and says, Yaakov, Yaakov. And God says to him, Don't fear from going down to Egypt. I know you're afraid. You're very afraid of this. And you know why you're afraid? Because you've been there before. You've been through this process of gerus, 
of avdus, of inui, of all of these different elements of what it means to be the refugee who's persecuted, you were there personally. And now this begins the story, it seems, of your children. Rashi doesn't understand his fear that way. Rashi says, no, 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 just, you know, he didn't like the idea of leaving Eretz Israel. But if you look at the Ramban and others, Yaakov was gripped by an absolute fright of what was going to happen because he had been there before. And as we'll see in a moment, there was something else he was concerned about. But therefore, God tells him, don't worry, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to be huge. I will go down with you and I will bring you out. God says that is my promise. So he is anus. He doesn't want to go. But al pihadibor, because of those words, based on God's word, he says, okay, I have no choice. I'm going to go see Yosef and I'm going to go down. What was Yaakov worried about? And I, I'm not reading through every source. It's going to it's over 50 sources over here. Take a long time, but anybody is welcome to read through it all. Ask me why I incorporated anything. I regret almost incorporating almost none of them. I'm not going to tell you which one I do, but okay. What was Yaakov worried about? And I'll tell you what Yaakov is worried about. I think it seems it seems obvious, and we're going to see it again and again. Yaakov wasn't worried about surviving the exile because he'd been promised by God that he was going to survive the exile, and honestly, he had been there, done that. But what Yaakov was worried about is that just because you survive in exile, and just because people, God will take you out, that doesn't mean that everybody with you will want to go. Just because God miraculously delivers the people, whoa, look at this, Jews who would like to leave can go. Just because you build the second temple doesn't mean all the Jews are going to come back. Just because you establish the state of Israel doesn't mean that's it. We're all back. It's just not the way life works. And so Yaakov is frightened. He's been through this before. And because he has, he understands the stakes and how difficult it is and how easy it is to get sucked in. And so he realizes out of his fear, he needs to react, to work, to guarantee his children's future. So what does he do? There's a bunch of things, actually. One of the things he does in source 22, he sends Yehuda ahead. He sends Yehuda ahead before the family goes down. Now, why does he send them ahead? So once some understand, it's Lahoros Lefanov Goshna. He sends him Lahoros. Rashi brings one attitude. He says, I'll tell you what Lahoros means. It means just to show the way to Goshen. They needed a city. They needed a place. They, needed, they didn't have ways. They had to find it. They had to figure out how to get there. The Rashi then quotes a Midrash that says, no, no, no. He went with Takein Lo-based Talmud. There needed to be schools. There needed to be an educational infrastructure. Without that, they're going to be lost. There's not going to be a possible way that any Jews at the end will be interested in leaving. That was element number one. That was tactic number one that Yaakov used. But there was another tactic that he attempted. And that tactic was, it says in the beginning of Parshas Vayechi, at the end of his life, we have two interesting pesukim. Vayeshev Yisrael is the last pasuk in Parshas Vayigash, which comes right before Vayechi, right? Vayeshev Yisrael, Beretz and Sarim, Beretz Goshen, Then the Jews live in Goshen, and Altsgit, everything is good, everything's going well, great. Vayechi Yaakov, and then Yaakov is on his deathbed, and things are at the end, and he tells his children something. So you're probably familiar, maybe not, but just in case, here we go. In a Torah, between the last Pasuk of Vayigash and the first Pasuk of Bereshis, we find a very weird thing. This space, I wasn't able to show this in person, this space is all we got between those two parshios. Usually a parsha has a nine-letter space, minimally. This is a three-letter-sized space, and then it goes straight to Vayichi Yaakov. This parsha is famously called a stuma, a closed parsha, one into the next. And the question is, why? Rashi explains, Rashi says two reasons. Rashi says, oh, it's because Yaakov was dying and the stuma closed. Their eyes were closed. They were depressed, depressed, depressed. Okay, fine. Rashi's second perspective. He wanted to reveal the end of days, when this was all going to end, when the gullus was going to end, when everything was going to be fine. But he couldn't. Nistema. It was closed off. He, he forgot the information. He stumbled. He could not get the information out. Still, like, why now? Yaakov is not actually at his deathbed. That's going to happen later in the Torah. He's going to give the brachos. Why would he want to share this now? And, and why would the, the parshas be closed together to intimate that he was closed off from doing so? And I think the answer is simple. 
look at this pasuk that leads to this pasuk. They live in Goshen and they're in Egypt. What does it mean, Vaye Achsuba? Rashi says, Lashon Achuza. They turned it into a stronghold. They bought real estate. They made vacation homes. They were there to stay. They made an Achuza out of its Mitzrayim. Goshen was the new place. Goshen was the new Jerusalem. And so because it was the new Jerusalem, his first immediate reaction was, He lived there for 17 years. But relax. This was not, he lived there. He existed there. He wasn't there for an achuza. He wasn't there. So now he wanted to tell his kids, 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 we're going to get out of here. Let me tell you when. Uh, and then the parashas are fused together because one is the reaction to the other. We have the Jews making an achuza out of Egypt. He immediately wants to share the kates when they're going to be out. And that's the sandwich between them. But unfortunately, it's stuma. It's closed off. He is unable to share this information. Tactic number one, make the schools, make sure that there's some Judaism out there. Tactic number two, try to tell them where it's going to end. And this has been a historical phenomenon. Everybody tries to share the, the, the Kates, the end, the Gullus, right? Nobody has the date right ever. And then there's tactic number three. Tactic number three, he tells his children, I'll say it outside, he tells his children, bury me in Israel. Why bury me in Israel? Rashi gives a bunch of reasons. Bury me in Israel, not in Egypt. Because the lice, uh, the ground's going to turn into lice, and they might deify me, all these reasons. The only reason I care about is Rav Hirsch. Rav Hirsch says as follows. Let's read this closely. Jacob, who had lived 17 years with his family in Egypt, could have noticed what a powerful influence the being gripped by the land was beginning to have on his descendants. How they already began to see the Jordan in the Nile and to find in their stay in Egypt no gullet, sufficient motive this for him to press with such ceremonious solemnity. Everybody get together. I want to make some Nayad Chatachas I'm going to make a big declaration. Don't bury me in Egypt. Carry me to the land of their old true homeland. Motive enough for him to say to them, you, my children, hope and wish to live in Egypt. I do not wish to even be buried in Egypt. This is also why he did not express this wish as Yaakov, but as Yisrael. Rehersh's perspective is this is one more attempt for Yaakov to get his kids to realize we are in Gullus, we need to get out, we need to be prepared. I want your minds facing east or northeast in a different direction. There's one last thing, and it works, because Yosef does the same thing. Yosef also wants his bones in Israel. And in the end, we find that Moshe indeed goes and schleps his bones to Israel. That's tactic three. But the most important tactic I want to focus on tonight is tactic number four. And it's this comment and it's this idea that got me thinking about this whole drasha. And honestly, the entire drasha developed from this idea. And the idea is as follows. We're going to find, and we have this in Bereshit Raba, we have this in Truma, we have this in Rashi and Truma, we have this in, 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 in later in Truma, we have this Rashi there as well. We have this idea that when they built the Mishkan, they built using wood. Where do you get wood from in the desert? They happen to pass an oasis. So Rashi says they were so confident that there would be a Mishkan ultimately constructed that they took wood with them from Egypt. Wow, that's, that's impressive. That's impressive. And that Rashi on its own is very impressive. They took wood from Egypt. They had such confidence that they would be building a Mishkan that they were going to need it to construct something on behalf of God that they took wood with them. Ooh, wow. It's reminiscent of Miriam taking the drum with her. Who takes a drum when you're escaping? I take a drum because I know we'll be celebrating out when we get over the sea. Okay, so it's a beautiful act of faith. But says of Yaakov Kamenetsky, there's more to it. He quotes the Medrash that says, do you remember when we said Yaakov stopped at Beersheba on his way down to Egypt? Why did he stop in Beersheba? So the Medrash says he stopped in Beersheba where, what happened? Avraham had planted Vayita Eshel. He had planted an orchard. He had planted trees. There was the Abraham, the patriarch forest. And he went to get some saplings from that forest. He takes them with him down to Egypt and he plants them in Egypt. Why does he do this? Why does Yaakov do this? Rabbi Yaakov Kamenetsky says beautifully in source 37, he says, the Hayakan Indian psychology. There was a psychological component to this. God told him, don't be afraid. 
But just because God tells you not to be afraid, I will deliver your children, that does not guarantee that your children will want to come. And so he was extremely afraid that his children would want to stay. The only way that he had to stop this from happening. It wasn't enough that he's just going to use words. He's going to pass to his children. Everybody remember, God will remember you. God will remember you. You'll get out. That's super. That's amazing, those words. But they're just words. And so says Yaakov Kamenetsky that Yaakov knew better. They needed a thing. They needed a totem. They needed a, a physical presence, something to look at, something to feel, something to stare at. That they would be visibly able to, 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 to experience. These are the trees that came from our grandfather Abraham. This experience in Egypt was an experience that we know from the time of Abraham. But we also know the second half of that, that will be out. And we will be redeemed and ultimately use these trees, trees to build the subsequent Mishkan. This was perhaps the most powerful of all of the tactics that Yaakov used. Yes, he created yeshiva, education, beautiful. He promised himself, he made his children promise that they were going to bury him there. You know, out of sight, out of mind, out of sight. It's a, it's a good message, but it doesn't stick around. And then, of course, he wanted to tell them the Kates, but he wasn't able to tell them the Kates, the end. He couldn't tell them. But you know what he always had? He always had these trees. These trees are the preparation that he put in to be able to take the message that he had learned from his experience with Lavan and transmitted it down to his children. Why does it say Arami Obiravi? Why do Bikurim begin with the story of Arami Obiravi? My friends, I think the answer is so obvious. It's not because that he was a fugitive and he ended up a year in Mitzrayim. Arami Obiravi, Yaakov, dealt with this experience once before. And then you know what happened? He went down to Egypt and now his entire progeny dealt with it again. But the only way we were able to survive, and honestly, we didn't do a great job. The famous measures that says, only 20% of the Jews, 20% of the Jews left, 80% wanted to stay. So as much as Yaakov, as much effort as he put into it, by Arami Rovi those three words are the introduction. They're not just like, like one little piece of the sentence. They're in the introduction to the whole story. Because Vayer Mitzrayma is the second version of Arami Ovidavi. And the only reason we survive Vayer Mitzrayma is because of what we learned, what Yaakov learned and transmitted to his children that they needed to know before they experienced it themselves. What a powerful lesson where Yaakov is able to experience untold suffering under Lavan, but he is able to productively create something that now could be taken forward. And with that preparation, his children are able to benefit from his experience and hopefully do better than maybe he even thought he did. That is what I think is the pshat, the understanding of these three words. Now, what does this have to do with Bikurim, right? Bikurim is where we say this five Pasuk story. Arami Dovidavi, 1.0. By Yerim Nisraim, 2.0. And 2.0 only happened, says Ismach, because Arami Dovidavi. Because he was able to learn the lessons and he passed them to his children. Well, why is that so important for Bikurim? And, and I got to tell you, Bikurim is not just like a little itty-bitty mitzvah. Bringing in your first fruits, that is huge. Let me just show you some examples. There's a measure that says in source 38, not going to read it inside, that says the whole world is created biracious because of racious. What's racious? What is that word? That word is referring to Bikurim. The aim racious el Bikurim. Bikurim is such a critically important mitzvah. Critically important. Why? I mean, it's one of the million things. We take things, we take Meister Shani, and we eat that in Jerusalem. Like, why is that a big deal? Like, why is it such a big deal? Good question. There's a Medrash Tanchuma that says that Moshe was worried that the base of Middash is going to be destroyed. And when the base of Middash is destroyed, you know what mitzvah you can't do anymore? Bikurim. My friends, there's a lot of mitzvahs we can't do. And yet he articulates Bikurim Asidim Lifsov. The Bikurim are going to be gone. Why is the Bikurim such a big deal? I'm going to skip this part. It's about how Amalek is also called Rehar. I skipped it before. Don't feel bad. I skipped it before as well. It's going to take us another 10 minutes to get through. 
But let me share with you the last and the strangest source that I think puts this all together about Bikurim. Look at this crazy Sifri. It says on the words when it describes the mitzvah of Bikurim, bring in your first fruits. It says, do this mitzvah. And in re- reward for this mitzvah, in that reward, you're going to Tikkanes Laaretz. You're going to get the land of Israel. What? You can't do this mitzvah until you get to the land of Israel. Like, what does that mean? What does it mean that you're going to do this mitzvah and you're going to get to the land of Israel? You can't do it until you get to the land of Israel. Like, what, what is this about? Why is Bikorim so important? Why is Bikorim such a significant part of the story? The answer is as follows. I believe that Bikurim is very different than all of the other agricultural mitzvahs. Think about Meiser, right? Meiser is like, I, I, I take all my stuff in. I look at my crops. I look at my produce. Okay, here it all is. I'm all done. By the way, before I can eat it, there's a rule. I got to take off 10%. I got to give it to the levy. And I got to take off another 10%. You give it to the poor or take it to Jerusalem. Okay, good, fine. Yotze. There are other other matnas kahuna or things that I give to the poor. I drop things while I'm while I'm you know while I'm on the field. I leave my corner. And there are other things that I do. I make challah. I make challah. I take a piece. I give it to the coin. A piece of the dough. A lot of things like that. Bikurim is very different. Think about the chronology of every single time I bring bikurim. Bikurim goes as follows, as I said in the beginning. I'm a uh, I'm a farmer. I have an orchard. I walk outside and I look at oh it's springtime. Look at the buds. The buds start to bloom. And as they bloom, I'm watching them day in, day out, to figure out which are the first fruits that are going to be ripe. Because those first ripe fruits, those are going to be the one that I am going to acknowledge belong to God. And I'm going to go all the way up to the base of English and travel to be able to bring them there. Imagine the amount of time, the amount of investment, the amount of preparation, the amount of background that goes into Bikurim, unlike any other mitzvah. Bikurim is such a critical, important mitzvah because Bikurim has me scanning my orchard for months. For months I'm looking at my orchard, looking for opportunities, which is going to be the fruit that I bring to God. It's not something that I do after the fact, after I look at everything that I have and I say, I'll take off 10% for you, God. It's, well, I'm in the process of the growth. I'm preparing for it. I do all the background work before I can even do the mitzvah. How can you say that in the merit of Bikurim, we get the mitzvah, we get the Eretz Yisrael if I can't do Bikurim yet? Because I can do Bikurim. Bikurim is not just the act of bringing it to the Beis HaMikdash. It's scanning my world for where I can say thank you to God. It's looking for the ripened fruits. It's trying to find a twig on which I am going to tie that little string, which will remind me that, you know what? Noted. That has to go to God. That can happen well before I actually get to the land. And that's the critical importance of Bikurim, because it's not just a one-time mitzvah. And as we see in the halacha, the halacha was wild stuff. You can read this in the English. The Rambam says that when they came close to Jerusalem, they would have a whole procession. They would have a whole parade when people would bring in the Bikurim. They would send messengers. They would adorn them. And the governors and the chiefs and the treasurers would go out, to, the treasurers would go out and greet them. According to the rank of the entrance, all the skilled artisans of Jerusalem would stand up and greet them. And that was all after they were bedecked with an ox that had horns with gold. I mean, I don't know how you get that done, but that's all. That's, that's an avoda in itself, just for the mitzvah of Bikurim. Bikurim wasn't just, hey, let me bring this over. Bikurim was about, first as a Ramid Ovidavi, I prepare, I learn from the experience, and then Vayerid Mitzrayimah. Yeah, here I am bringing the fruits. But you know what went into this? You know what went into this? Six months of Yerushalayim went into this. Six months of tracking my produce for God's involvement went into this. Six months of planning the parade, the procession, dipping the ox's horns in gold. My goodness. All of that went into the Bikurim. There's a Ramid Obidavi that prepared us for Vayer and Mitzrayim. That's the idea of Bikurim. I'm going to skip 47 because I skipped it in Shulos and I skipped 48 as well. And let me get to my point. Over the past year, we have suffered through probably, I'm not going to say it's once in a lifetime, it's not once in a lifetime. There are many people who have had lifetimes who did not experience what we will experience the past year. The loneliness, the just the, the, the health risk, the anxiety, something which was a global pandemic. This has never happened before. That literally everybody in the world is afraid about the same thing at the same time. You had this at a regional level, but with travel, it's like nothing that's ever happened before. This is ultimately 
a a a life I can't say altering, but at least in the moment, a life-changing experience. But does it actually change anything? Our shuls were shut. Everything as we know it changed. Everything that we take for granted, our behavior, everything changed and, and, and just had to be rebuilt. And here's my question. Arami Dovidovi, you'd see us in time 1.0, love on versus Yaakov. Yaakov was smart enough to know that if my children are going to move on, I will have to take the lessons from my experience and transmit it to them. I am going to have to tell them when it's over, maybe. Mm, God won't let. I'll build yeshivas. No problem. We'll keep classes on Zoom. We'll, we'll have some structure. No problem. I'm going to get buried. I promise them I'm going to. It'll be good. We'll tell us that it'll be good. It'll be good. It'll be better when it goes. We'll, be, we'll, we'll talk. We'll talk. But the most important thing that Yaakov did, he planted trees. He created something that while they were in the moment, they would be able to hold on to, stare at, to recognize that is going to be the thing that gets us out of here. That is going to be the thing, the project, the initiative, which we have to look forward to at the other end of this. You know, it's amazing. We've heard you can take a look at both of these essays, but I'll read the second one. The second one I shared on Shavuos and those bookmarks that we gave out. We gave out bookmarks on those books that we gave out Shavuos. I thought this was really poignant. I don't know if anybody noticed it, but if you noticed it, this was the quote. He says, I want to shut down shuls, says Rav Hirsch, because people think shuls are where Judaism happens. And it's not true. Home is where Judaism happens. And we can only outsource to the schools and the shuls because they exist. And so it's so easy for us to say, hey, you know what? You take care of it. You teach my kid. Rabbi, you do it. That's just how we are. That's just life. We love to outsource. It's great when we have partners. We call them partners. As schools say in partnership, we're in partnership. Says Rav Hirsch, if I had the power, I would close all synagogues for a hundred years. Do not tremble at the thought of a Jewish heart. And he goes on to say, you know why? Because we're going to have to rediscover how to do this at home. It's not about the shul. It's about the Judaism in our hearts, wherever it is that we are. And we were faced with exactly this, unbelievably. Our shul wasn't closed for a hundred years, more closer to a hundred days, not even, thank God. And then we reopened. For some people, it's been 365 days. They still have not been back in a regular sort of way as before. So here's the thing. Rav Hirsch tells us to shut the shul so that we learn something when we reopen it. So I ask you, what is our lesson from Arami Ovid Avi? What did we learn in this experience of having shut the shul, of having lived lives of precariousness, of anxiety, of health risks, of appreciation, new appreciation for family, for the elderly, for parents, for children, a new appreciation for a hug and a handshake, a new appreciation for slobbering over other people at a kiddish, for God's sakes. All of those things that we that existed, but don't exist now. What is the totem that we are planting for the other end? This question haunts me. Will we ever return to pre-COVID-19 norms? says the executive directors convened to address post-pandemic synagogue life. I hope not. I hope we do not go back to pre-COVID-19 norms. Kiddush, fun, gishmak, no problem. That I, love, that I can't wait to come back. I can't wait to see you all in person to, uh, I don't know, we could butt heads, I, I, whatever. Whatever new greeting we want to invent, the handshakes don't work anymore. Doesn't matter to me. But what else is going to change? Something must change. The OU put out guidance to think about over Pesach. How can our shuls be warmer, more welcoming, true sense of belonging? How can we make the shul experience more positive and compelling? What lessons did we learn from backyard minyanim? What about the fact that we have a minion that, you know, it's a 90-minute minion? What did we learn about that? What did we do? What did we learn about the quorum from social distancing? How do we better engage men, women, and children? How do we now better understand why it is that people come to shul in the first place and what it is that's keeping them away? How do we transition back to it? And I'm going to tell you something. We cannot miss the lesson of Yaakov Avinu. Arami Oved Avi, the introduction to the story of Egypt, cannot happen without the lessons that our forefather taught us about Egypt and cannot happen without him having planted those trees for us to stare at, 
and look at and see as the objective for the future. Now, here's the time where the rabbi is supposed to tell you, okay, so here's what we're going to do, everybody. Looking back on our personal past to guide our national and congregational future, I need another 10 minutes to talk about national. What do we learn about leadership? What did we learn about what a, a Yoy Shemayim and a Kiddush Hashem is all about? What did we learn about what the Jewish people need to represent in this past year? That's a question we're not going to talk about today. The national future, I'm way more invested in our congregational future. And so thinking towards our congregational future, I get up every week and say things from the pulpit. They don't work. What I mean is, I can't set the agenda. Rabbis always try to set the agenda. I need you to set the agenda. What tree do we need to plant? What have we learned about davening? What have we learned about engaging our children? What have we learned from being home? What have we learned that has to go different? Is Zoom great? Is Zoom something that must be continued? The answer might be yes. Is, uh, are, are, is more options for easy access, shorter davening? Is that the secret? What is the secret quieter davening? Something I'm totally not even imagining? Something that I haven't even shared with you? What is that? And that's the conversation I would like to begin with you all. What is the tree that we're planting that we're going to be able to stare at the other end? There will not be a case, just like Yaakov. I will not be able to tell you, and nobody else will as well, December 1st, everything is back to the old days. That's never going to happen. What that means is that this is even harder. There will not be a day on which, ta-da, we can reopen and everything is back. And we can think of the three line item issues that are going to change in shul. We are not going to be so blessed by having that case, just like Yaakov's children were not. It's going to be a transition. It's going to be slow. So that just means we have to pay closer attention to Arami Rovi What are the lessons that we're going to take away from the experience that are going to take us into the chinuch and to the experiences that we all are going to have together for the next decades? How are we going to transition out of Arami Rovi into our own Vayered Mitzrayim? What are we going to learn to make it better? That's the question I pose to all of you. I welcome anybody's anybody's contribution. I love ideas and nothing is scary to me. Nothing, nothing. What is the thing that you've learned that you think you would like to allow to change for us all? What part of our personal past should we look back to over the past year that can possibly guide our congregational future? That's the question I pose to you all. And so I hope like we do to the children at the Seder, I hope we all have a powerful answer. Thank you all for coming and listening. I wish you all a chag kosher v'sameach. It's great to see your names, if nothing else. It's great to see all the people who showed up earlier tonight. And may we all have bizochet geula shalema, a great redemption from the now into the future. And may we come into that future with amazing ideas. And may we inspire each other and have learned from this and always look back at this time as the time that perhaps changed everything. Have a good night.